right, well, it is good to see everyone here tonight at the Way Bible Church. And not only did I learn that the Pope can sing, but I learned that somebody else besides the Baptist is willing to wade out into the waters. I'm really glad to see that tonight. I tell you, that's enough to stir your heart and soul, isn't it? It is good to see you folks tonight. Good to be with you. Um, I haven't had a Sunday or really an opportunity to be able to be back with you because uh, we've been down at, well, over at, whatever it is, somewhere, the church uh, at Unionville and uh, preaching there and serving the folks uh, there while they are in search of a pastor. And it's been a great privilege to be able to minister. It always is a privilege to minister God's word, isn't it? Amen. And it's a great privilege that we have still to have the freedom in America to uh, listen to God's word and come out and have freedom of assembly. Uh, Those days may be waning for us, but uh, they're still here with us and we need to buy up and redeem every opportunity. So thanks for coming out. There are a host of things I'm sure that you could do on Friday night. I'm also sure you're probably tired, as am I, but uh, not retired yet. But it's really good to see each of you tonight. So I thank you, as Pastor did, for your effort and trust that God will uh, suit a blessing for each of us here tonight. We want to get right to God's words. So let's turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter number 10. And we are going to read from verse 25 down through verse 37. So I'll ask you if you'll just find that place in your Bible. Shouldn't be too difficult. Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, the third of the gospels. Find chapter 10 and get your eye set on verse number 25. And we're going to be reading on down through verse 37. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, that is the Samaritan, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said unto him, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Let me call your attention again to verse number 35, from which we'll take our text this evening. The latter part of the verse, take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more, When I come again, I will repay thee. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your loving kindness, your tender care, and your great mercies. Thank you that as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pity those who fear him. And Lord, as best we know how, we come to you tonight. We do fear you. 
We understand that you are the true and living God. We understand that we are on earth and that you sit on the throne of heaven and you are the true and only ruler of this universe. And I pray, Father, that you would just stir our hearts tonight. Oftentimes, uh, as has been mentioned, we come to the end of a a, a week like this. We are weary, but uh, whether we are weary of body or weary of spirit, we seek you tonight. And we know, Father, that uh, you give us the, the true and living water, you, that spring of water that, uh, that wells up within each of us unto everlasting life. And thank you for the privilege of knowing Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of fellowshipping with God's people. Thank you tonight that we have the Bible. Thank you that uh, the Bible is our true and trusty friend every day that we're here on this earth. And the blessed Holy Spirit is here to warm and thrill our hearts as we read it, as we listen to it preached, and as we pray to you. And so make our meeting tonight a blessing, Lord. You know who we are here tonight. You know our downsitting. You know our uprising. You understand our thoughts afar off. You know us each as individuals. And so, Father, visit us each where we need it most tonight. You know what that is, and our neighbor may not, but you certainly know what that is. Certainly, Lord, if we have anybody in the house tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, Oh, how we pray the blessed Holy Spirit will call people like that, men and women and boys and girls, to the lovely Savior. And again, Lord, for those of us tonight who know you, who love you, who want to do our best to serve you, uh, give us that added strength, that encouragement, that refreshment that we need. And now I pray, oh dear Father, for that cleansing and for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that I need tonight to be of service and usefulness to you. I confess, Lord, that there is nothing within me only what you have. And I pray that I will be a fitting vessel for you tonight because you have called, cleansed, and sanctified me. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, I call your attention to that verse number 35 again. What an interesting verse of scripture this is. The story, of course, is the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, and it is very much familiar to us. And I fear that sometimes when a a passage of Scripture like this is read, especially in a special meeting like this, uh, we kind of think to ourselves, oh, wow, um, the preacher must not have had another good sermon, or he didn't uh, have time. And it's true. I, I called this morning to Pastor Wise and told him I didn't have enough time. I was behind on my week, and I was calling for help from Judy. And he said that she'd been so occupied with trips to the doctors this week, she didn't have time to help me with the sermon. So I hope that you folks have prayed and uh, we'll stumble through this tonight. But I do fear sometimes that familiarity does breed contempt. And, uh, but I, I do want to say tonight that my desire tonight is not to take a, an old and familiar passage of Scripture and try to find some way to be new and novel with it. Instead, my purpose is simply to call your attention to the thing that God has laid upon my heart tonight, and that is a message of encouragement. When we look at this verse, and I've entitled tonight's message, Jesus Will Repay. You know, Jesus is good for it. Jesus never makes a promise he doesn't keep. But I'm thinking tonight especially about encouragement. And we were thinking as we heard the special music a little bit about water, and I was thinking actually about that a little bit earlier today as as sort of a figure of speech, as sort of a way to easily get this point across. You know, encouragement is something that's a little bit like water. You need it, you need lots of it, and you need it on a regular basis. And there are times that you go through patches where maybe uh, we're careless about it or we don't uh, get as much as we would like to have, but sooner or later you need this. 
which is, of course, one reason why it's so important to meet with God each day. But there are many things in the Bible that can be an encouragement to us. They can be an encouragement to us in Christian service. They can be an encouragement to us in the church. And that's precisely my target audience tonight. I want to speak to God's people. I want to speak to God's servants. And I want to be an encouragement to you. Look at those words again. Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Let's talk for a few minutes about the story because we certainly do not want of our text to make a pretext. It's always important that we give some context and some understanding to the words around it so that we can understand exactly where they come and what their meaning and application might be to us. But my treatment of this tonight is a little bit different. It's the application that I want to make in those words that we'll get to here in just a few minutes. I want you to notice with me as Jesus introduces this story tonight, he tells us the man who comes to him is a lawyer. Look at verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Now, this is very interesting because in the gospel, according to Luke, this is not the normal word that that Luke will often use. Instead, often the word for scribe is a word in the original language, grammatus, that means a man of letters. In other words, it's a man of, of great learning. But a lawyer is precisely that, and that's what this term is. It's nomikos in the original. It's, it's a man who specializes in the things of the law. Now, we have folks like that today, too, and, and sometimes we need them, unfortunately. But uh, when we need them, it's very important that we have them. But when you read that word in the Scripture context, a lawyer, this is someone who has training, professional training and skill with the law, but not the civil law so much as you might think of it today, or criminal law, as much as the law of God. So like the Old Testament. So here's someone who is a student and a scholar of the Old Testament scriptures. He comes to Jesus and says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's very interesting as we look at this that we don't really know the motive of this man. But one thing that we can tell for sure is, and that is, we have some idea of what his concept of what it is that takes to please God is. Or if we think about the question this way, he asks, what uh, shall I do to inherit eternal life? We might turn that around and put it in words that are a little bit more uh, familiar in everyday speech to us. What must I do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked. And he, this is what the, the, the lawyer is asking Jesus. He wants to know, based on the Old Testament, What is it that's required? What do I do in order to know that I have eternal life? Tell you what, it's not a bad question. It's a good question. I hope if you haven't gotten the answer to that question tonight, you'll get it tonight. But in any respect, this is what he's concerned about, and this is what he's inquiring about. However, it's his mindset that kind of stands out to us. Because even though it's the language of everyday speech, and sometimes we talk about what we need to do, what it really reveals is is that his concept of what it takes is works-based. In other words, there's something I'm going to do. And in this this parable of the Good Samaritan, we have really an exact parallel for a passage in another story in the Bible Uh, We find it variously. We find it in Matthew chapter 19. We find it in Mark chapter 10. We find it in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with almost the exact same question. He says, good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? So it tells us a little bit about what his idea of what it takes to please God is and true to form for anyone who has this concept. 
He lacks assurance. How do we know that he lacks assurance? Because after Jesus answers the, after he answers the question, Jesus says, well, you have the law. You're a student of the law. You're a scholar of the law. What do you read? And you'll notice his answer. He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and so forth and so on. And he concludes with, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he does a precise, accurate, and true job of summarizing the requirements of the moral law. Because thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength summarizes the first table of the law, the first four commandments that have to do with our vertical relationship, our relationship with God. And though he doesn't talk about the other six, that's to do with our horizontal relationship, our relationship with our fellow man, which is summarized, according to Leviticus, in thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus tells him, thou hast answered right, this do. That's precisely what he asks. What am I supposed to do? Jesus answers him on his own terms. This do and thou shalt live. But you see, his response to that is, and this is the lawyer perhaps coming out in him, although I think there's something of this really in each one of us. He says in the very next verse, the Bible says, he willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So now we have to split hairs. We have to kind of quibble over exactly what, who is your neighbor because now I'm not totally sure. Now that we've got this out on the table, he doesn't seem to be too worried about himself in terms of his relationship to God, but it sort of catches him a little bit about thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And when he thinks about these things, he doesn't have a real good assurance. He doesn't have a real good security that he's saved. And so he's got to split hairs over the matter. Folks, I'm telling you, that will always be the way it is until you are fully and finally liberated from the concept that there is any good thing within you that you are going to offer God in order to merit eternal life. The truth of the matter is there is no one here tonight, however big or little a sinner you fancy yourself to be, or even if you don't even think yourself to be a sinner, I just want to tell you the truth based on God's word that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that who is... Whosoever has offended in one point is guilty of all. It doesn't really matter about the hair splitting and the arguing over the matter. The whole truth of the matter is that whether by nature or by practice, each of us is a sinner who needs to be saved. And works don't accomplish that, which is the whole reason that Jesus came to die on the cross of Calvary. I have said it many times before, but God owes Jesus an apology if there was anything short of what he did by coming into this world and dying on the cross of Calvary that might have saved us. He owes his son an apology. The truth of the matter is there is nothing short of the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ that can save anyone. And the sooner you and I get away from this whole idea that whether as an unsaved person coming to God or even as a Christian, there's something I'm going to do in and of my own strength to get myself a little closer or maybe finally to work my way up the ladder to heaven, I tell you, it's a soul-liberating and a soul-freeing belief once you understand the truth of God's Word. There's nothing you need to do because it's done. There's nothing you need to try because Jesus has done it all. He's paid for it all on the cross of Calvary. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It's by grace that we're saved through faith, that not of ourselves it is the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. The only work that gets a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl to heaven is the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Well, that's the man who comes to him in the story. And 
he asks what it means to be a neighbor. And so the Lord proceeds to tell a story, but this man sort of is typical to us, just as are the priest and the Levite, of the bankruptcy and the hypocrisy of formal and cold and dead religion. Even religious works don't save a person. You know, you can be as religious as the day is long and still die and go to hell. What's important is to know Christ as your personal Savior. So let's come now to talk a little bit about the application that's before us tonight. See, normally, and there's nothing wrong with this because this is exactly what the story is designed to do, but normally uh, a standard treatment of this would be to preach a sermon that focuses on the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. And the priest and the Levite are, of course, as I said, representatives of the Pharisaism, the religion of the day that was cold and dead, essentially, and was works-based. The whole concept that the Jews had was that somehow through the law of Moses, they would somehow work their way in, 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 into God's favor. And of course, there's the Samaritan, which is a befitting uh, illustration to us of who a true neighbor really is. That's, that's now what, since the lawyer has inquired on that point, since that's the sticking point with him, Jesus goes on to tell a story that describes what it is to be a true neighbor. So I want to focus tonight not so much on the priest and the Levite, but we will focus on the Samaritan, and I also want to focus on the innkeeper tonight. So think with me for just a few moments about a true neighbor. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What's that really mean? Well, I don't know that we really understand everything that it means. The Bible gives us a lot that informs us about what that means, but I can tell you this. If you're looking for the ultimate good Samaritan, if you're looking for the one who is the true neighbor, the only one who really fulfills what this person describes in the story is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's no stretch to say that he's the ultimate good Samaritan. He is the the only true and fully true neighbor. He did for us what no one else can do as this particular story illustrates for us tonight. And the Samaritan, he illustrates that for us, but the ultimate fulfillment of that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this for just a few moments tonight. For poor sinners, who in the story sort of maybe illustrates that? Well, it's undoubtedly this Jew who has fallen among thieves. You know, isn't that exactly what sin does? Isn't that exactly what sin and Satan do? They come and take everything that we have from us. Once we give ourselves to them in paltry exchange for some pleasure of sin that lasts for but a fleeting moment and a season, they leave us just like those thieves did, right by the side of the road, half dead. There is no care and there is no concern in Satan. And so after, for poor sinners... This good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ, after sin and Satan like the thieves have taken from us everything that we possibly have to give and have left us for half dead, in compassion comes into this world and finds us where we are in order, as it says in verse number 33, to show to us mercy. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him. I don't know about you, but I, I think we're so often uh, overexposed to that term and it doesn't mean anything to us. And if we would really sit down and let that come into our hearts, I think it's tremendously convicting because I think all the time we don't do that. 
We don't really have true compassion on people around us. So often what we have for them is a lack of time and criticism. And unfortunately, you find that about as much in the church and maybe more so as you find it out in the world. And that is a sad commentary, but it's so often true. I'm thinking some other things that insofar as looking at the Samaritan and looking at him as ultimately a picture of the true neighbor, the true good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think about the fact that it cost him his pride. Why would I say something like that? Well, you know something? You think about that story in John chapter 4 where the Bible tells us that the Lord must needs go through Samaria. Have you ever paused on that to think about that for a moment? Because, you know, according to the practice of the Jews, that's not true. I mean, if you were going to go from Galilee to Judea in the south in a straight line, or you're going to go from Judea in the south through Samaria and to Galilee in the north, and you're looking for the shortest distance between two points, yes, that's what you would do. But you see, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, right? That's what we're told in that story. When Jesus must needs go through Samaria, it was because he had a divine appointment and the Spirit of God was leading him to that woman there that day at the well. And it's because God has compassion on all people and cares about all people and died on the cross for all kinds of people. And you're going to meet all kinds of saved people in heaven from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. He's calling out of this world a people to his name. But it cost him his pride. The Jew, the, the Levite and the priest, so stuck up, so better than others. So worried that they might somehow by contact with this individual have some kind of defilement or whatever the case was in their thinking could have no time and could spend no effort on this man. But the Samaritan, the one exactly that you would never think would do it, the one who was not motivated to do it because the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. They looked at them as rivals in their worship. And and basically, you know this from the story, the woman tells Jesus, our fathers say you're supposed to worship in this mountain and you guys say you're supposed to worship down there in Jerusalem. They had a Mount Gerizim there in in Samaria, a rival temple and a rival worship. And and, and there was just antagonism there. There was hostility there. And so for this Samaritan to stop and look at a man who is obviously a Jew and see him in his need... Really, it should have been the Samaritan who passed by on the other side. It should have been the Samaritan according to everything that's normal and natural to us who walked across the street and walked right on by. And no, it's not he that does that. It's the priest and the Levite who do that. It cost him his time. And I think to myself, you know, for him to stop and get involved, it cost him probably the most precious thing he had. The Bible talks later about the fact that he gave the innkeeper two pence. But you know something, to me, there's a lot more valuable than money, although you have to have a little money to make your way along this life, right? But our time, you can replace money, but you can't replace time. And we only have so much of it on this earth. And I'm sure this man was some type of a businessman. He had something going on. He had a beast of burden. He had goods there. He traveled this road. He had something that he, some business appointment, something that he needed to get to, but he stops. He sees this man. He has compassion on him, and he spends the precious commodity of his time. It cost him convenience and comfort. Did you notice that detail in verse number 34? And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, 
Well, I want to tell you something. If you've ever had an opportunity to visit the Holy Land and you know anything about that road from Jerusalem down to Jericho or in the reverse, the road up from Jericho to Jerusalem, it's a horrendously steep grade because going from down from Jerusalem to nearly where Jer- Jericho is basically at the level of the Jordan River, you're going down a huge distance and it's, it's a climb. I can remember being on those buses that, that we were on on one of those trips there, I just listened to that old bus slow down and that old diesel, diesel motor growl because of that steep grade that's there. Well, he had a beast of burden. He gives that to the man and puts him on his own beast. So it costs him convenience. It costs him comfort. And in the final thought, we see that it costs him money that he paid the innkeeper the next day. He comes out in the morning and he says, verse number 35, on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence. We're not used to the old English term pence. We don't even use those. We use uh, American terms for money, of course, in, in, in our country. But in the context here and in the New Testament, when you look at the word in the original, it's the denarius, which is, uh, by all accounts, everything that we can understand from the New Testament, the parable of the laborers and so forth, a denarius was a day's wages, that's, that's what a denarius represented, uh, a silver coin that represented a day's wages. So this is no small thing. He gives to the innkeeper two days' wages, his money. Take care of him, he says, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Now do you see the applications? Thinking about the least likely of people that Jesus would come into this world that God would be motivated to show compassion on, why would it be sinners like you and me? Why would it be people who are alienated from God? Why would it be people who, as Paul says, are not reconciled to God and who are in fact his enemies, who have knowingly or unknowingly all their lives, like sheep gone astray, turning everyone to his own way, caring not for God, and rejecting his word. Why would God care about us? Couldn't he find someone else to show his mercy on? Well, of course, I speak after the manner of men, but you see the point. I think about Jesus. Pride is usually not the greatest of our terms, but I think about Jesus setting aside the glories of heaven. I think about Jesus being willing to come into this world to take to himself human flesh. And for what? For worthless, antagonistic, hostile, hell-bent sinners. I think of Jesus willing to get involved. Jesus willing to sacrifice his, his comforts and his convenience. I think of Jesus living, leaving heaven's glory for earth's shame. I think of Jesus as one who, although he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery. That is to say, something to be held onto. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus did not have to grasp onto his identity as the Son of God because it's not something he's worried about. He's completely self-assured in that because he's very God of very God. But when he came into this world, he set all of that and the, the, all of the, the presence of the angels and all of his glories aside in order to come and take unto himself the likeness of sinful flesh so that for sin he might condemn sin in the flesh that the righteousness of God might be fulfilled in us. He did all those things. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, for he that is God hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God 
in him. I think about money. Is there an application of that? Well, I do know this. I do know that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be made rich. You know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. He tells us, if I needed this, I wouldn't ask you. It's all mine anyway. I don't need anything you have to offer as such. But riches, he has riches untold. Riches you could never dream of. Yet he came into this world, and I think of his words when he says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Think about recently, it's not been that long ago that Palm Sunday came and went. And I was preaching that day a little bit about, well, the title of the sermon was Lessons from a Donkey. But I was thinking a little bit about how little our Savior really had. I mean, if anyone showed an example of what it was to be fully dedicated to God and not to be concerned about the things of this world or to find himself ensnared or entrapped by them, it certainly was Jesus. Jesus didn't even worry about the bag. He gave that to Judas. But Jesus got to the end of his life, and what, he had, what did he have to show of this world's good? Not much. He had to borrow that donkey, right? Didn't have any beast of burden of his own. Even like the Samaritan in this story, he didn't have that. Had to make arrangements to borrow that upper room that night. Had to make arrangements, or had to borrow a rich man's tomb in order to have a burial place. He got to the end, and all he had was the garments that were there. And the soldiers cast lots for those. That's all he had. And yet he's, a, he's the Lord of glory. He has everything. Everything belongs to him. So when I think about the Good Samaritan, I can't help but think about Jesus. I can't, think of, can't help but think about the fact of how so much as I read these words reminds me of what Jesus did. And how... This man is meant to picture that in being the true neighbor, the one that sees the need and meets it, the one who cares, the one who gets involved, the one who puts others before himself. And I remind you of that simple acrostic that is so powerful when you think about the concept of joy in the Scriptures. What does it equate to? Jesus first, others second, yourself last. You and I don't do that. See, our, our order is completely the opposite of that. It's us first. That's what we're like. That's what human nature, unredeemed human nature, that's what it's like. Then we might find a little time for others, and if we get around to God, it's definitely a distant third. That's what we're like in and of ourselves. But I want to talk for a few moments in closing about the innkeeper. That innkeeper to me is like us in our role that God has given to us today. How is that so? Because the good Samaritan has to leave. Can't stay any longer. He's already done what he could. Spend of his time, spend of his money, comes in the morning and says to the innkeeper, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. And to this man, Jesus commits The Good Samaritan Samaritan commits the care of the person who's in his charge. And when I think about that, I can't help but think about the church. And I can't help but think about 
pastors and Christian servants and people that labor in the vineyard. People who, though they have perhaps a secular pursuit and a secular job, nevertheless do everything they can to serve the Lord. And I'm telling you, sometimes serving the Lord isn't easy. And if you've ever given much thought or dedication to that, you understand that along the way, it's sometimes very discouraging and very wearying. And we think about those mountaintops experiences, and then we think about the valleys. But you know, thankfully, those things are few and far between. But you know, what's in between them is a lot of open road. That's what life is. It's a lot of routine. It's a lot of open road. But is anything like the roads of Pennsylvania? As I tell you, it's rough. I mean, there's potholes and there's curves and there's dips and there's ditches on the side and all kinds of things that you run up on, which is why I said earlier, if it's anything like water that we need on a regular basis, it's encouragement. And what kind of words of encouragement are spoken here? If the Good Samaritan is like Jesus, what does he say to you and to me? What does he say to the innkeeper? What does he say to the church? Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. To me, I'll tell you, that's one of the most encouraging things I know anything about. It's true that God has promised in his word that he won't miss so much as a cup of cold water that's given in his name. And I tell you, one of my favorite scriptures when I think about this is Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. God is not unrighteous to forget your labor, your work of, uh, and labor of love which ye have shown toward his saints and that ye have ministered to the, to the saints and do minister. God is not unrighteous to do that. But you and I are bad at that. You know that? You and I are bad at that. We so often forget. We so often don't think to acknowledge the people in our daily lives that have been a blessing to us. And it's just sort of left by faith to know that what we're not to be weary in well-doing and just to know that in due season, if we reap, we'll faint not. I think about a little story that I came across from the Daily Bread. It tells of an event that happened on the 16th of December, 1944. If you know anything about history, you might sort of be thinking, okay, that's late in World War II. You're right, very late. There's a German counteroffensive underway. The battle that's going to determine whether or not that German counteroffensive is successful or not is what has come to be known to us today as the Battle of the Bulge. Well, there was an 18-member crew or uh, group, a platoon, reconnaissance platoon, that gave of themselves unbelievably sacrificially to hold off a crack group of German stormtroopers in a little Belgian hamlet by the name of Lanzarath. But you don't hear much about that. You hear about the big names and you hear about other events from the Battle of the Bulge and we have some faint recollection if they even teach history in the real history anymore of World War II and maybe some of the battles and so forth in it. But, you know, one of the men who was in that platoon, what, what that... What those men accomplished that day was to buy time, enough time that the Allies had the opportunity to organize their defenses. And you know the outcome. You know that the Allies were victorious in the Battle of the Bulge, but it was touch and go there for a bit. Well, there was a man who was a member of that platoon. His name was Will James. And after the war came to a successful conclusion, he did probably like a lot of other vets have done. He walked off the pages of history for four decades. Nobody really knew anything 
except maybe the people in his everyday life about Will James. But during those years, he underwent a number of surgeries, very painful surgeries as a result of his war wounds. Nothing much was ever said about it until November of 1981, when the Speaker of the House of Representatives and a columnist by the name of Jack Anderson brought to fruition efforts in order to see this man recognized, he was awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service Cross for Extraordinary Heroism. I kind of believe there's a lot of people like that out there. There's a lot of people out there in secular life that serve, and there's sure a lot of people in the life of the church that serve. And it's often unnoticed. They're often in some backwater somewhere, unknown, names are not in the publications and periodicals. They aren't written up and trumpeted and heralded like some of the big names may be. But they serve the Lord faithfully and with distinction. Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Did he not say, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. Not one cup of cold water has he missed. Jesus will repay. Jesus is good for it. People may have overlooked. People may have forgotten. You may have grown weary as have we all in well-doing. But Jesus will repay. You can just go on and keep serving. Even if they don't notice. Even if some people are unkind. Even if it feels like what you've gotten for your efforts is a slap in the face here and there. You can just go on and keep serving because there's coming a day when those opportunities for service will be over and gone. And then what we'll wish that we could go back and relive them. Then what we'll say we wished we had done more. We'll wish we had not listened to those voices of discouragement. Those people who would come and Satan who would use those things to overcome us and defeat us and to drive us from the labor of the vineyard into which God has called us. I think of one of the greatest missionary hymns that was ever bequeathed to the church. The title of that song is O Zion Haste. I'm sure you know that song. In a few moments, we'll sing that song in closing, not because it's a traditional invitation song, but because it fits with the message tonight. But you know those words, O Zion, haste, thy mission high fulfilling to tell to all the world that God is light, that he who made all nations is not willing one soul should perish lost in shades of night. As are so many of these songs, or as is the case with so many of these songs, the woman who wrote that song, the author, she was a lady who wrote that song, there's a story behind it. Marianne Thompson was in a room at the bedside of her son, standing vigil. The young boy was not expected to live. He was undergoing a tremendous bout with typhoid fever. And as the mother stood vigil by her son's bed, 
waiting the outcome and looking to the Lord, the boy rallied and he said to his mother something like this, Mom, if I get better, I want to be a missionary. He drifted back off and as she was by that bed and God visited her in her heart, she kept thinking about the fact that, you know, either way I'm going to lose him. If he doesn't make it and he succumbs to the typhoid fever, I'm going to lose him. But according to what he's just said, if he lives and makes it, I'm going to, in a different way, lose him. He wants to go serve the Lord on the foreign mission field. In that room that night, as she pondered all of that, she wrote that song. And when she got to the last stanza, this is what she said. And see if you don't see where she drew it after tonight's message. Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious and all thou spendest. Jesus will repay. Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Jesus will repay. O God in heaven, encourage and bless us tonight as we seek to, by the Holy Spirit, rally to the cause of Jesus Christ and to your service. Help us to love you. We confess the weariness and weakness of our own flesh and realize, Lord, that there are many days where it is a discouraging fight, but we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence with us every step of the way. We thank you for the prospect of rewards How could it be that we who are so unworthy, we who don't even deserve salvation, would be granted salvation, and then on top of that, the prospect of a reward for our service for you? Almost mind-boggling, and yet we read of it. Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also who love is appearing. And Lord, we don't understand it, but we look forward to it and only humbly pray tonight that we may have something to lay at your feet and acknowledge that Jesus will repay. We thank you for your presence, for your love, for all that you do for us and encourage us. Please encourage us tonight. We pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.